The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. This episode is powered by Poddex. Poddex are unique interview questions and episode starting prompts in the palm of your hand. So whether you're a new podcaster or existing broadcaster looking to grow your audience and have more meaningful conversations, you're going to want to check out Poddex. Now, if you want to get 10% off your order right now, you can go to poddex.com and type in coupon code, what's the code? Larry21. Yes, that's the code. Check out poddex.com. Take your podcast to the next level. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. We dive into stories of true crime, from unsolved cold cases to historic kidnapping to gangsters and beyond. We are your source for true crime. We thank you for listening. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. I'm your host, Larry Lace. If you're here for true crime stories, both solved and unsolved, you've come to the right place. On today's episode, we dive into the Manson family. But before we do, we'd like to thank our sponsor for today, Audible. If you're looking for the best place to get an audiobook of your choice from any kind of genre, whether it be fiction, nonfiction, biography, any kind of genre you can think of audible has it for a free three-month trial free audiobook of your choice head on over to audibletrial.com slash larry 21 and as always we thank them for sponsoring and now on to our first topic the manson family the manson family was a commune gang and cult led by criminal charles manson that was active in california in the late 60s and early 70s the group consisted of approximately 100 followers who lived in unconventional lifestyle with habitual use of hallucinogenic drugs such as LSD. Most were young women from middle-class backgrounds, many of whom were attracted by hippie culture and communal living, and then radicalized by Manson's teachings. Manson was born in 1934 and had been institutionalized or incarcerated for more than half of his life by the time he was released from prison in 1967 began attracting acolytes in the San Francisco area, they gradually moved to a rundown ranch called the Spawn Ranch in Los Angeles County. The ranch ended up burning down during a Southern California wildfire in September 1970. According to a group member, Susan Atkins, the member of the family became convinced that Manson was a manifestation of Jesus Christ and believed in his prophecies concerning an imminent apocalyptic race war. In 1969, Family members Susan Atkins, Tex Watson, and Patricia Krenwinkle entered the home of Hollywood actress Sharon Tate and married, excuse me, murdered her and four others. Linda Caspian was also present, but did not take part. Members of the Manson family also committed a number of other murders, assaults, petty crimes, and thefts. Following his release 
from prison on March 22, 1967, Charles Manson moved to San Francisco, where, with the help of a prison acquaintance, he moved into an apartment in Berkeley. In prison, bank robber Alvin Karpis taught Manson to play the steel guitar. Living mostly by begging, Manson soon became acquainted with Mark or Mary Brunner, a 23-year-old graduate of University of Wisconsin-Madison. She was working as a library assistant at the University of California, Berkeley, and Manson moved in with her. According to a second-hand account, he overcame her resistance to his bringing other women to live with them. Before long, they were sharing Brunner's residence with 18 other women. Manson established himself as a guru in San Francisco's Ashbury District, which during the uh, 1967's Summer of Love was emerging as a signature hippie locale. Manson may have borrowed some of his philosophy from the Process Church of the Final Judgment. Its members believed Satan would become reconciled to Jesus and they would come together at the end of the world to judge humanity. Manson soon had the first of his group of followers, most of them female. They were later dubbed as the Manson family by Los Angeles prosecutor Vincent Pugliosi and the media. Manson allegedly taught his followers that they were the reincarnation of the original Christians and that the establishment could be characterized as the Romans. Sometime around 1967, he began using the alias Charles Willis Manson. Before the end of the summer, Manson and some of the women began traveling in an old school bus they had adapted putting colored rugs and pillows in place of the many seats they had removed. They eventually settled, settled excuse me, in the Los Angeles area of the Topanga Canyon in Malibu and Venice along the coast. In 1967, Brunner became, became pregnant by Manson. On April 15, 1968, she gave birth to their son, whom she, whom she named Valentine Michael, in a condemned house where they were living in Topanga Canyon. She was assisted by several of the young women from the family. Brunner, acquired a number of aliases and nicknames, including Mother Mary, Mary Manson, Linda D. Manson, and Christine Marie. Actor Al Lewis had Manson babysit his children on a couple of occasions and described him as a nice guy when I knew him. Music producer Phil Kaufman introduced Manson to Universal Studios producer Gary Stromberg, then working on a film adaptation of The Life of Jesus set in modern America. It featured a black Jesus and southern redneck Romans. Stromberg thought that Manson made interesting suggestions about what Jesus might do in a situation. Seeming to be attuned to the role, he had one of his women kiss his feet and then kissed hers in return to demonstrate the place of women. At the beach one day, Stromberg watched while Manson preached against a materialistic outlook. One of his listeners questioned him, about the well-furnished bus. Manson tossed the bus keys to the downer, who promptly drove the bus away, while Manson watched, apparently unconcerned. According to Stromberg, Manson had a dynamic personality. He was able to read a person's emotional weaknesses and manipulate them. For example, Manson tried to manipulate Danny DiCarlo, the treasurer of the Straight Satan's Motorcycle Club, by granting him access to family women. Now we're going to take a deep dive into his connection with the Beach Boys. But before we do, please hit that like button, subscribe to the channel, and leave a comment in the comment section below on the topics we covered. Let us know your thoughts. Is there something we missed, something we should have covered? Let us know. 
Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys picked up Patricia Krenwinkel and Ella Choi Bailey when they were hitchhiking in the late spring 1968, while under the influence of alcohol and LSD. He took them to his Pacific Palisades house for a few hours. The following morning, when Wilson returned home from a night recording session, he was greeted by Manson in the driveway, who emerged from his house. Wilson asked the stranger whether he intended to hurt him. Manson assured him that he had no such intent and began kissing Wilson's feet. Inside the house, Wilson discovered 12 strangers, mostly women. The account given in Manson in his own words is that Manson first met Wilson at a friend's San Francisco house where Manson had gone to obtain marijuana. Manson claimed that Wilson gave him his Sunset Boulevard address and invited him to stop by when he came to Los Angeles. Wilson said in a 1968 uh, Record Mirror article that when he mentioned the Beach Boys' involvement to a group of strang- strange women, they told, quote, they told me they too had a guru, a guy named Charlie. Over the next few months, the number of women doubled in Wilson's house. He covered their costs, which amounted to approximately $100,000. This total included a large medical bill for treatment of their gonorrhea and 21000 for the destruction of his uninsured car, which they borrowed. Wilson would sing and talk with Manson, and they both treated the women as servants. Wilson paid for studio time to record songs written and performed by Manson and introduced him to entertainment business acquaintances, including Greg Jacobson, Terry Melcher, and Rudy Altabelli, the latter man who owned a house which he rented to actress Sharon Tate and her husband, director Roman Polanski. Jacobson was impressed by the whole Charlie Manson package of artist, lifestylist, and philosopher, and he paid to record his material. Wilson moved out of the rented home when the lease expired, and his landlord evicted the family. Manson established a base for the family at the Spawn Ranch in August 1968, after Wilson's landlord evicted them. It had been a television movie set for westerns, but the buildings had deteriorated by the late 1960s. The ranch then derived revenue primarily from selling horseback rides. Female family members did chores around the ranch and occasionally had sex on Manson's orders with the nearly blind 80-year-old owner, George Spahn. The woman also acted as guides for him. In exchange, Spahn allowed Manson and his group to live at the ranch for free. Lynette Fromm acquired the nickname Squeaky because she often squeaked when Spahn pinched her thigh. Charles Watson, a small-town Texan who had quit college and moved to California, soon joined the group at the ranch. On March 23, 1969, Manson entered the grounds of 10050 Celio Drive, which he had known as Melcher's residence. He was not invited. As he approached the main house, Manson was met by Shakro Hatami, an Iranian photographer. He had befriended Polanski and Tate during the making of the documentary Me and Roman. He was there to photograph Tate before she departed for Rome the next day. Seeing Manson approach, Hatami had gone onto the front porch to ask him what he wanted. Manson said that he was looking for someone whose name Hatami did not recognize. Hatami told him the place was the Polanski residence. He advised Manson to try the back alley, by which he meant the path to the guest house beyond the main house. Concerned about the stranger, he had gone down the front walk to confront Manson. Tate appeared be- behind Hatami in the house's front door and asked him who was calling. He said that a man was looking for someone. He and Tate maintained their positions while Manson went back to the guest house without a word. Returned to the front a minute or two later and left. 
That evening, Manson returned to the property and again went to the guest house. He entered the enclosed porch and spoke with Altabelli, the owner who had just come out of the shower. Manson asked for Melcher, but he felt that Manson was looking for him. It was later discovered that Manson had apparently been to the property on earlier occasions after Melcher left. Altabelli told Manson through the screen door that Melcher had moved to Malibu. Instead, that he did not know his new address, although he actually did. Altabelli said that he was in the entertainment business. He had met Manson the previous year at Wilson's home and was sure that Manson already knew that. At that meeting, he had given limited compliments to Manson on some of his musical recordings, which Wilson had been playing. He told Manson he was leaving the country next, the next day, and Manson said he would like to speak with him upon his return. Altabelli said that he would be gone for more than a year. Manson said that he had been directed to the guest house by the persons in the main house. He then asked Manson not to disturb his tenants. Altabelli uh, and Tate flew together to Rome the next day. Tate asked him whether that creepy-looking guy had gone to see him at the guest house the day before. And now we're going to dive deep into some of the crimes that the family participated in. Tex Watson became involved in drug dealing and robbed a drug dealer named Bernard Crow. Crow allegedly responded with a threat to kill everyone at Spawn Ranch. In response, Charles Manson shot Crow at, on July 1st, 1969 at Manson's Hollywood apartment. Manson's belief that he had killed Crow was seemingly confirmed by a news report of the discovery of the dumped body of a Black Panther in Los Angeles. Although Crow was not a member of the Black Panthers, Manson concluded he had been an expected retaliation from the Panthers. He turned Spawn Ranch into a defensive camp, establishing night patrols by armed guards. Tex Watson would later write, Blackie was trying to get at the Chosen Ones. Manson brought in members of the Straight Satan's Motorcycle Club to act as security. At this time, Bobby Busolet became more involved with the family. Gary Allen Hinman was a music teacher and Ph.D. student at UCLA. At some point in the late 1960s, he befriended members of the Manson family, allowing some to occasionally stay at his home. According to some people, including family member Susan Atkins, Manson believed Hinman was wealthy. He sent family members Bobby, Mary Bruner, and Atkins to Hinman's home on July 25, 1969 to convince him to join the family and turn over the assets Manson thought he had inherited. The three held Hinman hostage for two days as he denied having any money. During this time, Manson arrived with a sword and slashed his face and ear. After that, Busolet stabbed Hinman to death, allegedly on Manson's instruction. Before, before leaving the Topanga Canyon residence, he or one of the women used Hinman's blood to write political piggy on the wall and to draw a panther paw a Black Panther symbol. According to Manson, according to Manson and Pusilili in magazine interviews from 1981 and 1998 to 99, uh, Pusilili, apologies for saying this guy's name wrong, said he went to Hinman's to recover money paid to Hinman for mescaline provided to the straight Satans that had supposedly been bad. He added that Bruner and Atkins, unaware of his intent, went along to visit. 
Atkins in her 1977 autobiography wrote that Manson directed Buselet, Bruner, and her to go to Hinman's and get the supposed inheritance of $21,000. She said that two days earlier, Manson had told her privately that if she ever wanted to do something important, she could kill him and get his money. Buselay was arrested on August 6, 1969, after he was caught driving Hinman's car. Police found the murder weapon in the tire well. And now on to the most infamous murders of the Manson family. The murders of Tate, Sebring, Folger, and Parent. On the night of August 8, 1969, Manson directed directed Tex Watson to take Susan Atkins, Linda Caspian, and Patricia Cranewinkle to Melcher's former home at 10050 Celio Drive in Los Angeles. According to Watson, Manson told them to kill everyone there. The home had recently been rented to actress Sharon Tate and her husband, director Roman Polanski. Polanski was currently away in Europe working on The Day of the Dolphin. Manson told the three women to do as Watson told them. Family members proceeded to kill the five people they found. Sharon Tate, who was living there at the time, Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, and Wojcik Frykowski, who were visiting her, and Stephen Parent, who had been visiting the caretaker of the home. Atkins wrote pig with Tate's blood on the front door as they left. These murders created a nationwide sensation. Then, on the night of August 9th, 1969, seven family members, Leslie Van Houten, Steve Grogan, Charles Manson, and the four from the Tate murders drove to the home of Leno and Rosemary LaBianca. Watson said that having gone there alone, Manson returned to take him to the house with him. After Manson pointed through a window to a man sleeping in the living room, the two men entered the house through an unlocked back door. Watson bound the couple and covered their heads with pillowcases. Manson left, sending Cranwinkle and Van Houten into the house. Watson sent the woman to the bedroom where Rosemary had been bound. He began stabbing Leno with a bayonet in the living room. Going to the bedroom, Watson discovered Rosemary swinging a lamp at the family wound. He stabbed her with a bayonet and returned to the living room to resume attacking Leno, who he stabbed 12 times. Cranwinkle stabbed Rosemary. Watson told Van Houten to stab the woman, too, which she did. Cranwinkle used the lump. Bianca's blood to write rise and death pigs on the walls, and helter-skelter on the refrigerator door. Meanwhile, Manson directed Caspian to drive to the home of an acquaintance of hers. Manson dropped off Caspian, Grogan, and Atkins, and drove back to Spawn Ranch. Caspian allegedly thwarted a murder by deliberately knocking on the wrong door. So, we're going to take a look at the possible murder motives. In November 1968, the family had established headquarters in Death Valley's at the Myers and Barker Ranches. The former was owned by the grandmother of family member Catherine Gillies. According to Charles Watson and Paul Watkins, Manson and Watson visited an acquaintance who played the Beatles' double album, The Beatles. According to Watkins, Manson became obsessed with the group. Manson had been saying that racial tensions between blacks and whites were about to erupt and predicted that black Americans would rise up in rebellion. According to Watson, Manson said that the Beatles songs foretold it all in code. 
According to Watkins, by February, the family would create an album whose songs would trigger the predicted chaos. Murders of Whites by Blacks would be met with retaliation, a split between racist and non-racist whites, which would result in a white self-annihilation. Mike McGann, an LAPD investigator on the Tate murders, later claimed everything in Vince Bugliosi's Helter Skelter is wrong, saying, I was the lead investigator on the case. Bugliosi didn't solve it. Nobody trusted him. According to the family members, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, Leslie Van Houten, Bobby B., and others, the arrest of Bobby for the torture and murder of Gary Hinman was the catalyst for the family's ensuing murder spree. They wanted to convince police that the killers of Hinman were still at large. Truman composed interviews of Busselili and that by Anne Louise Bardock in November 1981 affirmed this account. Charlie Gunther, a police detective who investigated the murders, said of Bobby, he called the Spawn Ranch after he was arrested. The sole motive for those murders was to get Bobby out of jail. Bugliosi's co-prosecutor, Aaron Stovitz, said he believed the motive for the Tate murders was as copycat murders after Hinman. Other persons suggested the motive was related to the drug dealings by Jay Sebring and Wojtek Frykowski and their connections with Charles Watson and Manson and a bad drug deal. For instance, Sebring's protege, Jim Markham, believes the murders were in response to a bad drug deal the day before, in which Manson went to Tate's house to sell marijuana and cocaine to Sebring and Frykowski. Instead, the two men attacked and beat Manson. In an interview with police, Frykowski's friend... What told Kisanowski said that Frykowski had been involved with many criminals and the drug trade. In his later interview with Truman Capote, Bobby B. said, quote, they burned people on dope deals. Sharon Tate and that gang. Ed Sanders and Paul Krasner uncovered information that John, or Joel, excuse me, Rosto, the boyfriend of Sebring's receptionist, had delivered mescaline and cocaine to Sebring and Frykowski at Tate's house a few hours before the murders. During the trial, Rosto and other associates of Sebring were murdered. <clears throat> Excuse me. On December 1st, 1969, acting on the information from sources, LAPD announced warrants for the arrest of Watson, Krenwinkel, and Casbian in the Tate case. The suspect's involvement in the La Bianca murders was noted. Manson and Atkins, already in custody, were not mentioned. The connection between the La Bianca case and Van Houten, who was also among those arrested near Death Valley, had not yet been recognized. Watson and Krenwinkel were already under arrest with authorities in McKinney, Texas, and Mobile, Alabama, having picked them up on notice from LAPD. Informed that a warrant was out for her arrest, Caspian voluntarily surrendered to authorities in Concord, New Hampshire, on December 2nd. Before long, physical evidence and fingerprints, which had been collected at LAPD at Tate's house, was augmented by evidence recovered by the public. On September 1st, 1969, the distinctive 22 caliber high-standard revolver Watson used on parent Sebring and Frykowski had been found and given to the police by Stephen Weiss, a 10-year-old who lived near the Tate residence. Weiss's father made several phone calls, which finally prompted LAPD to locate the gun in its evidence file and connect it with murders via ballistic tests. 
The trial began on June 15, 1970. The prosecution's main witness was Caspian, who along with Manson, Atkins, and Cranwinkle had been charged with seven counts of murder and one of conspiracy. On January 25, 1971, the jury returned guilty verdicts against the four defendants on each of the 27 separate counts against them. Not far into the penalty phase, the jurors saw, at last, the defense that Manson and the prosecution's view had planned to present. Atkins, Cranwinkle, and Van Houten testified the murders had been conceived as a copycat version of the Hinman murder for which Atkins now took credit. The killings, they said, were intended to draw suspicion away from Bobby B. by resembling the crime for which he had been jailed. This plan had supposedly been the work of and carried out under the guidance of not Manson, but someone allegedly in love with Bobby B. Who? Linda Casbian. Among the narrative's weak points was the inability of Atkins to explain why, as she was maintaining, she had written political piggy at the house in the first place. Midway through the penalty phase, Manson shaved his head and trimmed his beard to a fork, told the press, I am the devil, and the devil, devil always has a bald head. And what the prosecution regarded as belated recognition on their part, that imitation of Manson only proved his domination. The female defendants refrained from shaving their heads until the jurors retired to weigh the state's request for the death penalty. On April 19, 1971, the four were sentenced to death. And that is what we have on the Manson family. There is plenty more we could get into, but that would take probably days to get into. But hey, let us know your thoughts in the comments section below. Um, give us your take. And of course, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, just search True Crime Never Sleeps. And as always, if you want to support the show, you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash TCNS. Your support helps the channel grow, upgrade our equipment, bring in new hosts, be able to pay them. And as always, thank you so much for watching and listening. We will see you next time. You have been listening to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. Thank you for listening. You can follow us on Facebook at True Crime Never Sleeps podcast and on Twitter at True Crime NS. And follow us on Instagram at True Crime Never Sleeps. Thanks for watching. If you want to support the show, buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash TCNN or become a patron at patreon.com slash True Crime Never Sleep.